The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Isabella Weber. We talked about her new book, How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. We discussed the economic reforms undertaken in China during Deng Xiaoping's rule from the late 1970s through the 1980s and 90s that enabled China's spectacular economic rise and integration into the capitalist world economy, and how in the late 1980s, China came close to implementing a shock therapy program of price liberalisation of the kind that caused an economic and social catastrophe in the former Soviet Union and much of Eastern Europe. We also talked about how the gradualist market reform approach that was eventually adopted drew on the experience of the Chinese Communist Party during the Chinese Civil War, as well as techniques of market intervention that dated back as far as the 7th century BCE. Finally, we talked about whether China's reformers genuinely believed that the reforms they were implementing were simply laying the basis for economic development, that at some undefined point would make possible a transition towards communism, and the very mixed feelings of China's reform economists about the consequences of China's turn towards the market. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. What are the origins of the hostile environment for immigrants in Britain? In his new book, We're Here Because You Were There, Immigration and the End of Empire, Ian Sanjay Patel tells Britain's recent history in an often shocking account of state racism that still resonates today. Combining voices of so-called immigrants trying to make a home in Britain and the politicians, diplomats and commentators who were rethinking the nation, Ian Sanjay Patel excavates the reasons why Britain failed to create a post-imperial national identity. We're Here Because You Were There, Immigration and the End of Empire by Ian Sanjay Patel, is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Isabella Weber is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. On the 27th of this month, there's an official online launch event for the book with Isabella, James K. Galbraith, Branko Milanovic and Arbin Wong. If you'd like to attend, you can find a link in the description of today's show where you can register for the event. If you would like to hear the extended 90-minute version of today's interview, you can sign up as a PTO supporter on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can access extended versions of regular shows And £5 patrons also get exclusive access to episodes of PTO Extra, shorter interviews on current events. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to become a supporter. So if we just start with the title of the book, for anyone unfamiliar with the term shock therapy in the context of economics, what was shock therapy and and what were the effects of its implementation in in Russia and, and Central and Eastern Europe in the early 90s? I mean, very broadly speaking, the idea of shock therapy was a approach to market reforms that started from the presumption that the old system would have to be torn down to create space for a new kind of system, to create space for the market. So really the idea of needing to put the old system into ashes and then for the markets to rise like phoenix from the ashes from from those ruins. And this basic policy prescription was composed of a number of specific policy measures. One of them was price liberalization, as far-ranging and as quick as possible, which was called the Big Bang. And then, of course, the second element would have been privatization. But it was acknowledged by even the most hardcore shock therapists that privatization is a fairly long and um, (laughs) complicated process, since you actually need to somehow restructure ownership relations, right? So the shocking element of shock therapy that could be implemented overnight was really price liberalization. In terms of the 
effects elsewhere. It's of course the case that for the Soviet Union, you didn't only have economic shock therapy, but you also had a collapse of the Union and a collapse of the Soviet state. So it's of course very difficult to disentangle those elements. But nevertheless, if we just look at basic indicators like inflation and GDP growth, we find that pretty much after the Yeltsin large-scale price liberalizations, we do observe a shooting up of inflation and then a very severe period of hyperinflation. So in other words, prices are skyrocketing and spiraling completely out of control, whereas uh, GDP collapses and then basically stagnates and only rekindles years later. And I mean, the shock therapists did in fact predict that economies would have to go through a so-called valley of tears. So shock therapy was very much based on the assumption that in order to achieve reform, suffering had to come first. And one of the famous slogans was, for example, if you want to cut a cat's tail, you better cut it in one fell swoop of the knife instead of cutting it in pieces, right? Which is, of course, an extremely brutal metaphor. There seem to be a lot of quite violent metaphors. I mean, the other one is surgery as well. You know, this notion of, yeah, you have to kind of go through this invasive, brutal process, and but then you'll feel better. Yes, yeah, so it's really the idea you have to go through short pain, and short pain is better than prolonged pain. So better to go through this process of reckoning, through this like brutal process of cleaning <laughs> cleaning the whole system from from these old burdens and then and then recreate, right? So in that sense it's 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 really based on the assumption and the acceptance, explicit acceptance of of suffering in the first place. And the suffering was very bad indeed, not only in economic terms, but also in, in terms of health consequences, mortality and all of that. If someone wanted to try and mount a defence pointing to supposedly successful examples, I mean, one of them might be perhaps Vietnam, which went through its own process of liberalisation and, and price liberalisation, but did not suffer the kind of disaster that we saw in, in the former Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe. What do you make of that counterexample? Yeah, I mean, let me preface this by saying very explicitly that I'm not an expert on Vietnam. But I think it's important to remember that by the time Vietnam started reforms, it would have only been under a planned system for a relatively short amount of time. So in some sense, the planning institutions wouldn't have been as deeply rooted as, say, in the Soviet Union. And I think this does make a difference in the sense that these processes of transition into the plan take time <laughs> so that the starting point would have been quite different. And it's also important to remember that, of course, Vietnam was still a largely agricultural economy at the time, which is quite different from the basic economic structure of the Soviet Union and to some extent also of China, since the main controversy in China was really about what to do with the industrial core of the economy. Yeah, I suppose also with Vietnam, there's also the factor of, of South Vietnam being outside of the planning system until the late 70s as well. Yes, yeah, precisely. That's what I mean, like in terms of the establishment of the planning system still being fairly recent, right, in ter if, if we consider the country as a whole. And of course, there would have been people and institutions in South Vietnam that would have been still intimately familiar with market practices, with business practices, with the workings of basic capitalist market economics, right? Which is quite different from, from a setup where these institutions would have already been fairly removed in, in historical terms. Before we come on to more of the main thesis of the book, and no worries if you'd rather not answer this question because it is, you know, sort of outside the purview of it. But one question I had reading the introduction and reading some of the stuff about the imposition of, of shock therapy in Russia was that on the left, it's very common to see shock therapy as almost a geopolitical weapon, a program that's instituted in the case of the Soviet Union, in order to cripple what had been America's Cold War rival, reduce the country to a, a dependent status. Whereas I think from reading your book and reading not just on advocates of shock therapy within China, but also sort of Eastern European reformers, 
It seems like those advocates of, of shock therapy very sincerely believe that the programme would be beneficial. And yeah, as, as I said, that doesn't really seem to be the story that you sometimes hear around Russia. Yeah, I mean, there is a big question of the local roots of shock therapy, right? And I think by now it's fairly clear in terms of the historical scholarship on this question that this was not simply an idea that was purely imported by the Bretton Woods institutions and imported by people like Jeffrey Sachs, who at the time was dubbed as Mr. Shock Therapy. I do think that there is a kind of a some kind of an intellectual convergence where a certain way of thinking about um, prices and, um, and values in, in, in fact, the orthodox Marxist tradition can lead to fairly similar implications that the most important thing that you need is a rational price system. And if this is paired with neoclassical economics, as it often was also in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, that can easily lead to very similar ways of thinking about the creation of markets. However, I think at the same time, it's important to remember not only the, I mean, the geopolitical dimension is, of course, incredibly important, but I think it's also important to see the attraction of modern science and economics from the perspective of the respective Soviet counterparts. So I think that the kind of economic expertise that was brought in, of course, fell on fruitful soil, if you want so, since similar lines of reasoning had already been developed locally. But at the same time, the attraction that came and the, the, the kind of authority that came with this air of presenting the most modern Western economics should also not be underestimated. And this is in a, a context of a general crisis of, of confidence in the, in the socialist bloc, I suppose. Precisely, yeah. On that point about the strange sort of convergence that you can get between orthodox Marxism and the shock therapy advocates, one aspect of that that is, is particularly surprising is, is that the sort of refutation of, of Maoism and, and, and the voluntarism of, of Maoism that you describe in the book is precisely justified in those terms, that, that this is actually about a return to Marxist orthodoxy in the sense of this stagist approach where you need to sort of build up the productive forces and then eventually over time, once you're you know, a, a rich industrialised country, then you can think about moving into socialism. Could you talk a bit about that and about how the reformers on both sides of the debate, whether shock therapists or the, or the more gradualist reformers, how they saw Maoism? Yeah, I think it's important to recognise that in the very early stages of reform, there was initially a certain kind of reorientation towards a more orthodox Soviet kind of economics where Maoism under, I mean, late Maoism really, under the Cultural Revolution, to put things into extremely simple terms, would have basically argued that a revolution of the relations of production could have the effect of also pulling up the forces of production. So kind of reversing the relationship between forces of production and relations, social relations of production. And then in the late 1970s, there's a return to this more orthodox idea that you first have to develop the forces of production, or in other words, you have to first develop the material basis of your society in order to then eventually move up in the stages of history and be able to create more socialist or eventually also communist kinds of relations of production. So in other words, there was a sense of having moved too far ahead in terms of revolutionizing the social relations of productions. Now, this was, of course, like a fairly highbrow theoretical debate that um, was quite different in, in quality from the more hands-on debates on what exactly to do with reform, right? So we can think about this as a part of the larger ideological shift that then opened the space for all these ideas of making up lessons from capitalism, since capitalism was more advanced in terms of um, material progress. So therefore, socialist China first had to make up lessons in terms of economic development from capitalism before it could move into more socialist forms of organization. And once that space is opened, then it, of course, becomes uh, you kind of 
move towards, not quite yet in the late 1970s, but eventually you move into a terrain of anything goes because you can kind of justify any kind of capitalistic measures as serving economic development and therefore serving um, historical progress and therefore um, helping to move towards a more socialist kind of society eventually. The fact that everything was, was justified in terms of Marxist theory and in terms of eventually advancing towards socialism or communism, do you regard all of that as very sincere at that point in time? They really believe that that's what they were doing? Or do you think some people had a more sort of cynical view and were aware that they were laying the basis for a turn towards capitalism of some variant or other? I think it would be too simple to just say, oh, people then were completely convinced that they needed capitalism and they just fiddled around a little bit with Marxist <laughs> orthodox slogans. I think that would be too simple. At the same time, I do think that at this moment in the late 1970s, there was a quite fundamental sense of crisis. After Mao died in 1976, Hua Guofeng became the dedicated heir of Mao. And he basically had started another attempt at big push industrialization the idea was to basically use petroleum findings that China was quite successfully discovering in the 1970s as a way to generate foreign revenues and then use these foreign revenues to buy foreign technology and then basically achieve centrally planned big push industrialization fooled by this imports of foreign technology but it turned out that these petroleum reserves, the projections were completely off. They were completely overly optimistic. So that this model <laughs> very quickly ran into a crisis. And at the same time, there was, there was a deep sense of stagnation in terms of China's economic development and also in terms of the basic living standard of the masses of the people in the countryside. So at that point when the Cultural Revolution as this politically driven large-scale project with all its violence and shortcomings and all of that had been of course completely buried and condemned by that time and then this failure of a renewed Stalinist type big push industrialization kind of really opened up the question of how to move forward from here in terms of economic development. And so I think we have to see these ideological shifts that result in a opening up of the scope of what is considered legitimate in relation to this very real and very severe material crisis in the late 1970s. In comparative terms, where did China rank in the international system at the start of the reform process in the late 70s? It's actually, I think, interesting to look at this from a more long-term perspective. And if we look at countries' shares of world GDP between the 19th century and 1980, we see that basically, in, according to the Madison estimates, which are not perfect, but still the best estimates that we have, in the early 19th century, China's economy would have accounted for about one-third of world GDP, that had shrunk to f around 5% by the time of the revolution in 1949, when China had become one of the poorest countries in the world. And in 1980, China still found itself in a position of having around 5% of world GDP and still ranking amongst the poorest countries in the world. So in that sense, the revolution, of course, was always about more than economic progress, but it was also about escaping backwardness and the slogans of catching up and taking over England um, were, of course, prominent slogans of Mao himself, right? So that ambition clearly had not been achieved. And under Hua Guofeng, under Mao's designated heir, one of the things that he actually did was to not only open up to foreign technology, try to import foreign technology, but also he had delegations tour the world, so the capitalist world. And they basically came back with the observation of it, with the message that there was no sign of revolution in the capitalist countries, and they had grown rich and polite and civilized, as one official put it. So in that sense, 
the sense of backwardness, if anything, had become even more severe by the late 1970s. But beyond these considerations of relative position in the world economy, I think it's important to acknowledge that, of course, basic industrialization had been achieved under Mao and um, important breakthroughs in terms of public health had, had been achieved. As one um, World Bank official whom I interviewed put it, China was still a poor country, but you did not see the kind of atrocious poverty that you would see in other parts of the developing world that, in his words, wouldn't let you sleep in your hotel at night. So um, some of the most ugly aspects of poverty had been removed, but the project of the communist state was not simply to remove the, the, the ugliest aspects of poverty, right, but to also achieve actually some, some degree of prosperity. Once we're into the reform period and it's accepted by the leadership that, that economic reform is needed and Europe pains to point out that there isn't this contrast that's sometimes made between two positions which are sort of reformers and conservatives who just want to keep things as they are, but rather you make the point that there are two different positions on the question of reform and it's a battle about which one of those positions comes out on top. So could you describe those two contending positions? Sure. I mean, just to be sure, obviously, there was also a question of the broader ideological orientation. But I'm trying to argue in the book is that too little attention has been paid to the very, very fierce struggle within the reform camp. So two reform camps or two two formations of reform intellectuals emerged in, at that time, whereas one group basically grew out of established intellectuals who used to already be established academics under the old system, if you want so, who also typically had been banned from their position during the Kaiser Revolution and then were returning to the cities and re were returning to the institutions of academic research. And then basically engaged in this breaking open of the minds, this, this rapid engagement with Western economics and Western ideas about the economy. But interestingly, in this process, some rather unlikely ambassadors of neoclassical economics came to really matter, which were a group of Eastern European emigre reform economists who basically had left their own country since their reform projects there had been stalled or often also were not really, I mean, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't find a warm welcome if they were to return to their countries, to put it, uh, put, put it lightly. So out of this, this tapestry, um, also with involvement of the World Bank, which was actually one of the important facilitators of these exchanges between Eastern European emigre reform economists and Chinese academic economists, a reform approach emerges that if you want so, focuses on the rationalization of prices. The basic idea is that if you want to have more market, you need to have rational price systems, If sorry, price signals. If you do not have rational price signals, then markets cannot function properly. So you get these ideas of of basically a combination of calculation-based and liberalization-based reform. So the idea was to first adjust all prices based on a one-time calculation of what the most rational price vector for the economy as a whole would be. And then once prices are at this alleged equilibrium points, one could liberalize prices more or less overnight. And since presumably they would already be in the ideal position, such a liberalization then would be fairly, fairly smooth. And that should have been combined with macroeconomic austerity, which should, in this vision, help to prevent a spiraling out of control of inflation. And that logic really grew out of market socialist ideas of the Oscar Lange type, but were also supported, ironically, by people like Milton Friedman, who also visited China at that time. So this was like one side of the debate. The other side of the debate emerged more or less out of an alliance of revolutionary generation 
older leaders and um, a young generation of so-called urban intellectuals who had been sent to the countryside um, during the Cultural Revolution as when they were still pretty young and had often spent basically their whole youth in the countryside and then returned to the cities when Deng Xiaoping reinstated the university entrance exams. And since they had lived in the villages and they had come to identify strongly with the question of agricultural development and had in fact already during the Cultural Revolution started reading circles and discussion circles and, and had already started to develop ideas about reform. When they came back, they basically continued this commitment. And thanks to often family connections with this revolutionary generation of leaders, they quickly were put in a position where they would be listened to by pretty high-level <laughs> leaders within within the party and the state. So when the agricultural reforms first started, this group of young intellectuals became an important resource for the reform leaders of the central government since the agricultural reforms, I mean, there's, there's big debate how exactly they started, but there was at least some degree of spontaneous development of experiments with giving up on organizing production on the commune level and instead moving it down to the level of the household. So these young reformers basically functioned as, as people who surveyed these experiments that were popping up. So they really grew into an influential force in reform through this on-the-ground survey research of agricultural reforms. And you describe one of the things they're particularly looking at and thinking about, which is the so-called dual price system, whereby there were some prices determined under the central planning system and, and then prices determined on the market. Can you explain exactly what the dual price system was? So what happened in the countryside was basically that the households would be delivering their share of the quota that would be handed over to the central distribution systems at a state-set price, but they were allowed to produce above the quota if they managed to do so, and then sell their output that was above quota output on markets that were emerging at the time. And these market prices typically were above the plan prices, so there were very high incentives to produce above the plan. And um, as a result, this system helped to encourage a very rapid expansion of production that was in many ways unexpected for the people involved at the time. So then when the question of how to reform the core industrial system became the central question by the mid-1980s, these people who came out of agricultural reform basically argued that a dual track system that had already been emerging in the industrial system as well could be transferred into industrial production. So in other words, the idea was that companies, or to put it more precisely, socialist production units, could similarly to the agricultural households fulfill their quota and then if they managed to produce above the quota sell this above quota output on the market at a market price so that a multi-tier system also emerged in the urban industrial part of the economy. And why was it that the shock therapy economists opposed the dual price system that was advocated by the gradualist reformers? Those people that aimed for a rationalization of the price system and who saw a set of clear price signals as the most important elements for creating functional markets. They looked at this dual-track system with a great degree of skepticism and increasingly also hostility in the sense that they thought that these multi-tier prices were actually creating a situation that was more chaotic and less desirable even than what had happened before reform. So this was then kind of the tension that played out between these two reform camps, where the second reform camp argued that the existing institutions of the old system should be 
used as market creators and should, through the dual track price system, gradually grow into the market, grow into institutions that would know how to operate on the market. Whereas on the other hand, the first group that then came to articulate arguments that are basically in parallel with the idea of shock therapy, argued that such an overlapping system would create friction, would create scope for corruption, and would actually undermine the possibilities for China's reform if it was left to exist for too long. And they weren't necessarily wrong on the question of corruption, right? No, they weren't necessarily wrong on the question of corruption. So, of course, if you have a situation where a good charges a fairly low price within the plan and at times extremely high price outside of the plan, then those people who are in command of the within plan resources have extraordinarily high incentives to channel some of the resources to the market and possibly also benefit from this personally. What and those who criticize this then eventually also kind of invoke the Virginia school type of arguments of rent seeking and all of that. And they do have a point. The big question is whether liberalizing <laughs> prices and giving I mean giving up on the core planning system would not have in some ways created even more scope for corruption since um I mean corruption would of course have taken a different form but yeah yeah well there was no shortage of that in Russia certainly precisely so we cannot say that shock therapy would have avoided corruption so clearly there was a corruption problem but it's not clear that the solution that was presented would have prevented that on the shock therapists and their sort of ideal, the target model that they were going for and that they sort of idealized. One of the interesting points you, you make around that is that the same people who had this very fixed blueprint in mind of what the correct system should be were the same people who'd had a similar view about a Stalinist planning system in the earlier period. Could you talk about that a little bit and why that's maybe not as surprising as it seems on the face of it? I mean, there's, of course, not a one-to-one match, but there is a certain tendency that I think I have observed, not only in the Chinese context, but also in in some of the cases that I came across in the Eastern European context, where often those who had been particularly enthusiastic admirers of the idea of Stalinist industrialization, then fairly smoothly transitioned to these ideas of target system-oriented types of market reforms. And I think that there is some sense to that, in that in both cases, um, there is an aspiration to create an ideal type system that is, as as a whole system, somehow um, appears to be logical. So then if you come from one big ideal type of a system and you want to reform, you articulate an alternative ideal type and the question of reform then becomes how can you move from ideal type A to ideal type B? Whereas those people who came out of the agricultural reforms, and by the way, for the revolutionary generation of reformers, it's also important to point to the 1940s experience of the Chinese Civil War, when the communists basically used techniques of economic warfare that was, um, they used really commercial agencies that they were creating to reintegrate markets that had fallen apart and thereby reintegrate economic structures and thereby overcome hyperinflation in the communist base areas. So these people who came from, from this practical work of how can we quite literally create strategies of economic warfare to overcome the severe problem of hyperinflation came from a quite different mindset um, compared to the people who are socialized in orthodox Soviet economics as, as, an, as an abstract endeavor to create the idea of a, of a planned economy. One of the examples that the so-called package reformers or, or shock therapist advocates drew on 
as did neoliberal thinkers such as Milton Friedman, was the so-called Erhard miracle, the, the revival of West Germany's economy in the 1950s that followed price liberalisation, which led to a lot of soul-searching in the UK because of Britain's comparatively poor post-war economic growth. Can you say something on the West German example and why it proved ultimately unpersuasive as an example of, of the supposed benefits of shock therapy? Yeah, so we have to be careful in distinguishing the historical example of the West German post-war consolation and what has been made of that example in the discourse of neoliberals arguing for shock therapy, where in the latter case, Ludwig Erhard's currency and price reforms were really mystified into the beginning of Erhard's miracle, where we can, um, for example, read Milton Friedman um, saying things like the Erhard miracle was a very simple thing. Um, he imposed tight monetary and fiscal control and then liberalized all prices overnight. And boom, this started the West German miracle, where in reality, it is, of course, true that there was a currency and price reform and that this was very drastic and very fast. But First of all, it did not involve all prices and it did not involve some of the most critical prices such as basic industrial inputs as well as basic consumption goods, fees for tra public transport and so on. But secondly, rather than smoothly creating a miracle, it actually invoked um, massive opposition, massive public reactions and um, a very large scale strike. So this was not at all a welcome, smooth, instant miracle, but was something that the working class and the unions in West Germany immediately opposed, um, which then actually resulted in a, a certain degree of backtracking. In any case, the point being that the idea of the Erhard miracle and the ways in which it has been invoked by Friedman both in the UK as well as in the Chilean context, um, but also in China, and then later on, in fact, also by West German politicians in the context of the reunification, um, was something quite different from what the actual um, economic policy decisions and the outcomes of that were in the West German context. Now, in China, interestingly, already in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, there were exchanges with West German auto-liberals who started to promote the ideas of a social market economy and also the idea of replicating Erhard's miracle. But then towards the late 1980s, when the proposals for wholesale price liberalization were starting to be very seriously considered and almost implemented, there were other auto liberals <laughs> that were in fact arguing that liberalizing key prices such as steel and energy would not help China's reform, would not help China create markets, but would rather result in cost push inflation and thereby undermine the very conditions that were needed for um, market reforms. And given that the Erhard miracle was such a key metaphor for the po possibility of success of a big bang and price liberalization on the part of those who were arguing for this, those who were skeptical and thought that a big bang would be disastrous, then actually traveled to West Germany and did investigations in West Germany, interviewing people who were involved in the post-war reconstruction, trying to understand what the reading in West Germany at the time of their own history would have been. And this delegation was actually invited by the Social Democratic Friedrich Ebert Foundation, but they also had a meeting with Herbert Girsch, who is, of course, known as one of the leading German neoliberals, who, um, who ended up warning this Chinese delegation against trying to replicate a so-called Erhard miracle, since he was pointing out that in the West German case, the industrialists and the capitalist companies and the corporate governance of a market economy was still in place at the time when price and currency liberalizations were implemented, whereas in China, all the companies and enterprises, so all the producers that could be reacting to price signals were in fact still socialist production units and as such were not prepared to act in a fashion that would be reflecting price signals. So therefore Herbert Gersh, as I said, one of the most prominent um, West German neoliberals of the post-war era, um, sits there warning the Chinese delegation against replicating the Erhard miracle that had become so 
important in the imagination of the possibility of, of a Big Bang. So in, in that sense, the Erhard Merkel was a very important reference point and a very contested one as well. In terms of the historical resources and, and the intellectual resources that the more gradualist reformers and advocates of the dual price system drew on, I mean, you mentioned one of them there, that the, the Civil War experience, which is obviously a, is surprising. I think many people wouldn't imagine that's what you know, the communists were up to in the late 1940s. But you also talk about the use of price controls in the United States and Britain during World War II. But the example that you go into most detail about is actually a very ancient example from within China. And it's around debates in the 7th century. And you're talking about a political and philosophical text, which is in a way one of the very earliest economics texts as well. And you talk about the competing tendencies that favoured and, and, and opposed regulation of, of prices at the time. I mean, presumably it would have been quite possible to tell the story of, of China's modern economic reforms without discussing these very ancient texts and, and, and debates. And I wonder if you were at all wary of doing so, because obviously it leaves you open to being accused of sort of essentializing or orientalizing Chinese society and, and suggesting there's some kind of immutable trans-historical core to the country. Could you say something on that and the way in which you would rebut that kind of accusation? Yeah, so I have been struggling with that. And I have, in fact, until the very end, <laughs> been questioning myself whether I should or should not leave that chapter in the book, the chapter on the Guanzi and on ancient traditions of bureaucratic practices of market regulation. One aspect of the reforms that I haven't mentioned yet that I think is incredibly important is that the dual-track system and the gradualist type of reform approach also meant to start from the margins of the system or to start from the places of the system that could be reformed without, in the first instance, completely redoing the core of the system. So there was a very clear sense of what is essential and what is not essential. So for example, you might want to conduct experiments with a production unit that is producing one specific kind of screws. And if you screw this up, <laughs> that would have bad consequences for any producers that need that specific kind of screw. But if it's a very specific kind of screw, then this would be a fairly small number of producers. Whereas if you want to do experiments with the largest steel producers that are an absolutely essential input to any kind of machinery and practically to almost any kind of manufacturing activity, then this would potentially have much more fundamental and far-reaching consequences. So in other words, the steel production facility is much more essential than that imagined small production unit for very specific screws that, let's say, are very small and are only needed in a specific kind of toy. Okay, So it became quite clear through the fieldwork that I've done and the interviews that I've done that such a logic of distinguishing between essential and non-essential was very central to the practical reform thinking in China. Now, this is a distinction that after the pandemic to people in the <laughs> so-called West, I think is much more familiar and intuitively convincing than it was before the pandemic. But before the pandemic, there was hardly any analysis in economic thinking that was based on these distinctions between essential and non-essential. This systematic analysis of essential and non-essential goods and how they hang together in the ways in which the state can regulate the market, not through command and order, but through mechanisms of market participation, I have really found articulated the most clearly in these ancient Chinese texts. So I've come to think that they present a useful theoretical lens, a useful lens of analysis. And what I've done in the book is to basically, instead of suggesting that there's one monolithic Chinese tradition of price regulation, to uncover that within the Chinese context itself, there has have been recurring debates and there have been different schools of 
thought on the question of, of how the state is supposed to interact with the market, not entirely unsimilar from the kind of recurring debates over laissez-faire or not that we observe in, 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 in the Western context. So what I've ended up doing is to kind of preface my book with these recurring debates in the Chinese context, but then immediately switch over to the Western context and specifically the context of um, World War II price controls and decontrols after the war to show that these questions of how the state is supposed to regulate prices and thereby regulate markets is one that is not uniquely Chinese or uniquely Western, but that we can draw on these very different contexts and put them in productive conversation and thereby understand part of the larger tapestry of the 1980s. On the advocates of, of shock therapy, is your sense that the supporters of, of shock therapy in, in China, that they perhaps didn't have the same kind of resources that they could draw on, you know, sort of whether those be ancient resources or, or more recent, like the Civil War experience, and that that perhaps put them at a disadvantage in that struggle? I don't think that they had less resources. I think they had different resources. I think it's also important to acknowledge that within the Chinese tradition itself, there was also a actually commonly attributed to the Confucian way of thinking about the world, a tradition of laissez-faire and of the right engagement of the state with the economy being one where the state would not be activist participating in the market, but rather simply regulating the market as an external entity. So in that sense, it's, it's not like one side in the debate had Chinese tradition behind it and the other didn't. I think... Also, as regards the wartime transitions, we actually have experiences on both sides that are relevant. And in fact, in some sense, it was the shock therapist that invoked the wartime transition even more eagerly than the other side. And in particular, they invoked the Erhard miracle. And of course, um, shock therapy had pretty much all of the mainstream of the profession of economics, of the international profession of economics behind it, which is, a, of course, a not at all insignificant resource. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that um, there was an imbalance in terms of intellectual resources at all. In fact, I think that the greatest resource of the gradualists was that their system was already running. So it didn't have to be invented, it didn't have to be implemented in one big program, but it kind of emerged and then was already in place. So to some extent, you're kind of escalating an experiment that you're already engaged in and, and have been engaged in for some time. Yes, so it's like a process of starting certain experimentations, in, in some cases basically by loosening certain types of controls and then research that would investigate what happens with these experiments and then like kind of a almost po posthumous kind of theorization, systematization of why this approach could work. And then eventually this approach will be turned into national policy. So you have this kind of back and forth between pushing the boundaries and then investigating what happens when you push the boundaries and then gradually turning this into policy. If we come up to the crunch moment with the debate, so in the book you describe these two moments in the late 1980s where, where China really came to the, the brink of, of shock therapy and ultimately backed away, the first in 1986 and then the second during the more well-known crisis of, of 1988-89. In the case of the former, could you describe the context for the debate about going for shock therapy and why ultimately the leadership backed away? So basically, by the mid-1980s, these ideas for a target system for reform had been far developed and had really generated a considerable cloud within China and then also were supported by all sorts of foreign visitors, including this famous World Bank conference on a boat on the Bashan that figured prominently in Julian Gewurz's book, Unlikely Partners. So basically, you have this consolidation of that kind of reform approach, which is also becoming 
more and more influential, not least because the multi-tier gradualist approach is showing some of the problems that we have already discussed. So once these challenges of the dual track or multi-tier system become apparent, the promise of creating one big program for reform and thereby basically solving the big problem of, of rationalizing prices becomes an attractive option. So in that context, Zhao Ziyang, who is an incredibly important architect of reforms in the 1980s, he becomes the initiator of the so-called program office, which was meant to draw up a program for wholesale price liberalization combined with wage and tax reform and fiscal austerity measures that should then have been implemented in the course of a couple of months. So the idea here was really what later became called the Big Bang in the shock therapy programs. And importantly, this program office vision for reform included some of the most important essential strategic commodities for the industrial project. Okay, so this kind of institute, this program office was set up. It was staffed with very high-ranking people from across ministries, staffed with some of the most prolific and well-known Chinese reform economists that by then would have engaged with their Western counterparts for some seven, eight years. And they are sitting together, drawing up these plans, articulating what the precise steps would be that would have to be taken and all of that. On the other hand, these gradualist reformers were, were extremely wary of this approach. And they basically, one of the important intellectual resources of the program office economists was to draw on the authority of Eastern European reform economists. So what the opponents of this Big Bang approach do is they organize a survey, a several-week survey in Hungary and Yugoslavia to try to understand why the attempts at reform that had been ongoing in Yugoslavia and Hungary for a long time by, by the mid-1980s had not yielded results, and in particular, what the outcomes of attempts at price reforms in these two countries were. And they sent back a telegram to Zhao Ziyang and also meet Zhao Ziyang immediately after they come back and basically argue that such a wholesale price liberalization would result in hyperinflation because the Chinese price system was organized such that the most essential industrial commodities such as steel, coal, etc., would be priced relatively low. So they would, in some sense, consciously be priced below cost, whereas goods that were less essential and quote-unquote luxury products, such as radios, wrist watches, um, bicycles, and so on, would be priced above cost, which meant that under the old system, there was a redistribution across sectors happening that was organized through these price differentials. Now, what these opponents of a Big Bang argued was that if you liberalize the prices of steel, coal, and so on, of most essential industrial commodities, these prices will shoot up because they were consciously priced below cost. And also the dual track system was indicating that the market prices were way above plant prices. So clearly liberalization would result in an increase in prices. Now, this price increase, according to these opponents of, of the Big Bang, would under the socialist system be handed down to the next production unit. So let's say the producer of bicycles now faces steel prices that have tripled or quadrupled, what would the producer of bicycles do? They would also increase their prices <laughs> and hand this down. Now consumers would be suddenly facing much higher prices than before in a situation where companies could not go bankrupt. They were still practically socialist production units. These consumers were also workers and they would be demanding higher wages and it would be very hard to resist these demands for higher wages because prices are increasing. So as wages would also be corrected upwards, you would basically get into 
what we call in economics a wage price um, spiral, right? Where wages go up, then prices go up, as prices go up, wages go up, and so on. But importantly, since to some degree, these price movements would be more or less in step, the adjustment of relative prices that was meant to be achieved with these price liberalizations would actually not occur. So the argument was, if you do this kind of wholesale price liberalization, you get hyperinflation, or at least you risk hyperinflation, therefore risk social and political stability, and possibly even undermine the foundations for further reforms, while you do not even achieve what your goal was, which was to adjust the relative prices and make them, quote-unquote, more rational. So in this context, Zhao Ziyang, when he receives these very stern warnings based on these surveys and on-the-ground investigations in Hungary and Yugoslavia, he basically arrives at the conclusion that implementing such a big bang would be too risky and basically pulls back the project for wholesale price liberalizations that he himself had initiated. But, of course, the challenges of reform don't really go away. So by 1988, it becomes clear that not only are there these challenges presented by the dual-track program, but also, in contrast to the first half of the 1980s, when it seemed that basically everybody was winning more or less equally from the reforms, or there was a sense of, okay, this is really good for everybody, the costs of reform also start to become apparent. And at this point, there's also an actual inflationary crisis developing, right? Yes. So prices actually start to um, increase in ways that they hadn't before. And also certain liberalizations of important food items are implemented in the early, in early 1988. Also liberalizations of cigarettes and certain kinds of liquor that were considered as non-essential goods. But once these prices increased, they were actually um, turned out to, to <laughs> create more dissatisfaction than, than was anticipated. At the same time, those who did think that China's system had to be overhauled in the late 1970s, but did not want to give up on key tenets of the planning system, started to become very nervous and started to push back increasingly intensely against reforms. So you have this increase in general social tensions and increasing pushback against reforms from those who often have been labeled as conservatives or ideologues, and the sense on the part of Deng Xiaoping that he has to save his legacy and has to save the project of reform. So in this context, Deng Xiaoping basically steps up and takes initiative for another attempt at wholesale price liberalization. But in this already very heated context, the announcement of price reforms, of comprehensive price reforms alone is enough to unleash a kind of panic, massive pa panic buyings, bank runs and all of that, inflation spirals before inflation was high, but now it like really spirals out of control. And people in China pretty much for the first time lose their trust in the value of money, where of course, as a result of the marketization, they had become increasingly dependent on relying on monetary relations, right? So in the summer of 1988, for the first time since the revolution, really, you have a moment of what feels like the first steps towards hyperinflation. And we have to remember that the downfall of the nationalists in the Chinese context is often linked to their failure to get hyperinflation under control. Of course, it cannot be reduced to that, but it is considered an important element of the downfall of the nationalists. So this inkling of hyperinflation in the summer of 88 is taken as an extremely serious, serious issue. And basically, the reaction to this is a turnaround on reform. These ideas for price reforms 
are halted and we get this like kind of pushback on reforms, which then the combination of this hyperinflationary or at least very high inflation episode of 1988 in the context with this retightening of controls is important to understand how things then boil over in 1989. So in the crisis of 1989, would you then tend to see it? I mean, obviously, the protest movement was very heterogeneous and there was no sort of unified, clear ideology. But, but would you see it then more in economic terms then rather than about political demands necessarily? I think it's a whole mix of different kinds of demands, of different kinds of people with different kinds of visions. But I do think that, the, that this like deadlock that China finds itself in by late 1988 as a result of letting things spiral out of control in the context that I've just described is important context to understanding why this movement takes on the magnitude that, that it does, which is not to say it can be reduced to a movement for more economic security. I think that would be false. But I think I mean, just like if you think of the Yellow Vests in France, clearly it's about so much more than the price of diesel, right? But nevertheless, the announcement that the price of diesel would be increased was kind of what triggered it, right? And then it like takes on a life of its own. And by now, I mean, it's not as important anymore, but we all remember the, the scale that it took on, right? So I think something similar is, is happening in the Chinese context. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.